I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Peter Moran. And you're tuned in to listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast, or we'll make love to a tentacle beast. Hey, Peter. Hey, dude. How you doing? I am doing pretty good. Uh, this is this is a first for us. This is a big deal. I don't even know if uh, a lot of podcasts do this. Uh, I'm assuming that most people that have podcasts don't have uh, lives or uh, <laughs> or family or anything like that. I think that we're bucking the trend in that uh, perspective. But we, uh, I, I'm going to be on vacation when we, we were going to record our uh, possession episode uh, next week. And so we are actually recording episode 10 before we record episode 9. Now, you're not going to you're not going to be able to hear that as a listener cuz you're just going to go, I mean you're going to hear it cuz I just told you this now. But if if we hadn't ruined it, you would just listen to episode 9 and then 10 and and not be any the wiser that some timey-wimey stuff was going on. And and the motivation behind that is that if we missed a single week I don't even want to know what kind of backlash there would be. I mean, I assume we get death threats because that's the way that that <laughs> everyone handles anything nowadays. Oh my god the the guy that delayed uh, what's the video game? No Man's Sky. Yeah, yeah. yeah he he, he delayed threats. the game. He delayed the game. Not like six months, three weeks maybe. I think it went from like the twentieth to the ninth or something. Yep. <laughs> and he got legitimate death threats over yep. it. It's like, you guys realize that he's not delaying the game specifically to fuck with you. He wants to make the game better. Also, if you kill him, you're not going to get the game. Yeah, well, especially, so, like, you're going to be in prison. Yeah, so. you, you spe- I mean, the game will be released, but you specifically will not be able to play the <laughs> yeah, game. Yeah, like, the best you're going to get in prison is PS2. Yeah. Do you remember, um, do you remember that guy, that fucking horrible dude, um... Yeah, I hosted Inscape. a podcast with him. <laughs> uh, I think his name is uh, Anders Brevik, the guy who killed all those those, those uh, Muslims in Scandinavia. There was like some sort oh, of... Oh, like, yeah, yeah. But he wrote a letter to the... Is it, was it Sweden? The Swedish uh, court uh, basically asking for uh, an upgrade to the game console that is in his jail cell apartment unit. I think he had like a PS and he wanted a ps3 like he put it as like a formal at the end of this long letter where he like dropped a bunch <laughs> of anti-semitic and islamophobic bullshit in it and then towards the end of the letter he's just like and also a ps3 would be nice yeah i mean i'm not surprised he's a gamer <laughs> i like playing video games too but i kind of assume if you're a if you're the type of person that is willing to kill people over their religion you probably also like video games because it seems to attract the worst of people as someone who spent uh, four hours playing Dark Souls 3 today, uh, my number one deterrent to playing video games uh, is other people that play video games. Yeah. No, I think that's that's 100% fair. So, uh, last week, you probably heard Joseph Finn, uh, host of Try It, You'll Like It on our show. Um, I want to thank him for being on the show, but I don't know how to do that at this point because... We actually haven't recorded that episode yet. I thought that we would just run through some potential scenarios of things that I I think are likely to happen on episode nine. We'll edit all this out, of course. Yeah, we'll edit all this out. And then this is just for you, Peter, so that you can put this together in a way that makes sense. So I'll I'll just start with, you know, probably the most likely to happen, which is, you know, I'll, I'll just I'll just go right now. 
So thanks for so much for being on our show last week, Joseph. Uh, we had a great time, a great discussion. We hope to have you back soon. So that's one. If that's how the show goes, um, leave that one in. Okay. Cool. Um, so I, I have a few other ones that I think are pretty likely to happen on the Candyman episode with Joseph. I'll just go. Thanks so much for being on the show last week, Joseph. Um, I apologize that Peter got confused and played Candyland instead of watching Candyman. Um, I know most of his comments were about Queen Frostine. Um, and I can't believe he wasn't even able to finish a game of Candyland for our podcast. Uh, he didn't know how it ended. It was really sad. But thank you so much for being on the show. Here, I'll, I'll go through another scenario that might happen. Uh Thank you very much for being on the show last week, Joseph. I can't apologize enough for putting you through such a difficult experience as uh, trying to make you run through your time in the band One Direction. You really were the heart of the band. And then as soon as they left, I mean, I was out the door too. But thank you for sharing that with us. Really, really something. Yeah, I mean, you watched Candyman and we only talked about it for five minutes. But, you know, the people spoke... They wanted to hear about your time on One Direction, and I, you know, I hope that that was an entertaining podcast for everyone. It was certainly for me. All right, I'll, I'll do another one. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show last week, Joseph. I thought it was a really interesting theory that you had that the curse of the Candyman resulted in only one White Sox World Series win since the movie was released. Um, I don't know if I particularly buy into that, but you know. That's a, that's a very interesting theory, and uh, that's the only place that you can get theories like that on Listen to Our Podcast. Thank you very much for coming on the show this week, Joseph. I wish that I could say that it was a good time, but after your comments about the people of Saskatchewan, we just really can't have you back again. It really divided our audience between, you know, pro-Saskatchewan and anti-Saskatchewan people and i just you know this, this this is supposed to be an inclusive show it's not supposed to be you know that edgy and if and if peter's saying that who if you've listened to our previous episode he has a known anti-canada bias you know it was pretty bad it crossed a line for me certainly i mean you know no feel the room yeah yeah oh. feel the room that you're not in with us <laughs> feel that yeah. um i have one here uh thank you so much for being on our show last week joseph i am sorry that I kept referring to Tony Todd as Worf's brother from the Star Trek show. Um, I forgot his name, but I knew he was Worf's brother, and I just went with it. Thank you very much for being on the show last week, Joseph. I'd like to just say um, it's a pleasure to still be broadcasting uh, after the recent alien invasion. You know, we're all really happy that the aliens stepped in and, you know, uh, fixed all of our political problems, like... We don't have homophobia anymore. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's gone. Uh, a lot Joseph more alien an phobia, but yeah. Yeah, Joseph was an ambassador from the alien race the whole time. I had uh, no I had no idea. Thank you very I had much. No idea. For, yeah. Well, I mean, we know uh, once they started, you know, dropping those uh, sex chambers and, you know, the, having uh, chili cook-offs, everything just kind of kind of came together for us as a race. And uh, yeah, I'm glad that we could we could welcome our ambassador, Joseph Finn, on the show. Thank you very much, Joseph. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for being on our show last week, Joseph. I think we're all a little sorry about using the phrase, who can 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 the candy man can as much as we did. Um, it was unplanned. Uh, but, you know, once it got stuck in our head, that was literally all we could say. There's about a half hour of that phrase just being repeated from each person. Uh, very strange time. But, you know, thank you for taking the time to do that with us. Whatever that was. <laughs> um, 
Thank you very much for being on the show, Joseph. We are, of course, broadcasting after the alien invasion. Um, we know that their sex chambers and chili cook-offs seemed like a really good idea at the start. But um, now we know that it was, in fact, a trick that the, the, the chili was really spicy. Trying to, They're trying to get some acid reflux uh, disease on an epidemic level uh, into the human race. And, you know, in a world where chili cook-offs are prevalent, vegans become outlaws and outlaws become heroes. So if you're a vegan out there, rise up and help take back our country. I would, but I ate the chili and now I have massive acid reflux so you're you're really you're really thinking that uh there's going to be an alien invasion a joseph-led alien invasion next week yeah i mean you cover for both sides of how the alien invasion would go you know they'll have sex chambers yes uh you know there'll be chili cook-offs because how else would you you know welcome people to the new world order that they're setting up really i wanted to make sure that we're we're covering all of our bases that's good no, it's good to be on both sides of that. Thank you so much for being on our podcast last last week, Joseph. Uh, a correction to make. Uh, we said at the end of the episode that for episode 12, uh, we'll feature us going back in time and killing a baby Hitler. Uh, we're actually just going to be talking about the movie The Apple. <laughs> we will not. Uh, and we said specifically, I know we said specifically we did not want to kill even a teenage Hitler. That only baby Hitler was what we wanted to kill. Uh, but again, we're not. I don't know. I don't know how that ended up on the calendar. We're, we're just going to be talking about the, the canon movie, The Apple. <laughs> Cover that base really nicely. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for being on the show, Joseph. Because of your advice, I've now purchased a PT Cruiser. <laughs> that was actually my next one. That's how likely I thought that would happen. <laughs> it's, um, it's more or less 99%. 99% sure. But you never know. Um, Thank you so much for appearing on the show, uh, Joseph. Another correction. Uh, apparently, Virginia Madsen is not where the uh, name of the state West Virginia came from. Um, I don't know why I thought that, uh, but I apologize for saying that and adamantly defending my point when you two both tried to correct me multiple times. I said some names I shouldn't have, uh, but I really thought that West Virginia was named after Virginia Madsen. Thank you very much for being on the show, Joseph. As you know, because this happened already... Uh, Aaron and I broke up the podcast last week. Therefore, this will be our last episode, and one of us is uh, bitterly uploading it to the internet right now. This um, is like we, we decided to break up on Let It Be. Mm-hmm. This is our Abbey Road. Yes, yes, yes. Um, or, the, or the other way around. Thank you so much for being on our show last week, Joseph. In retrospect, having a Who Can Jump Higher contest is not a great idea for a podcast, but good to know that I won regardless. Yeah, it's weird how you just won every round, but you didn't sound, like, tired at all. Well, when you can jump that high, why would you? Why would that make you tired? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, you're just so... You gotta think, Peter. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on our show last week, Joseph. I'm sorry to everyone listening when Peter said that editing this podcast is as much work as delivering a baby. Uh, that is not the official view of listen to our podcasts. Uh, we, we do complain. It's a little difficult. But, you know, to all the moms out there, uh, in no way does our podcast think that uh, the simple act of editing this down is as is, is difficult as delivering a baby. Peter, I, I don't know where you get off. I uh, stand my beliefs. And last one, thank you so much for joining us last week, uh, Joseph. One correction, Carl Douglas, who sang the song Kung Fu Fighting, will not be a future guest on this show. That was wishful thinking on Peter and mine's part at best. We're going to have guests, but as far as we know, Carl Douglas, the singer of Kung Fu Fighting, 
will not be one of them. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if all those things happen, to be honest. Uh, we have a very diverse, interesting podcast. We like we like to have a lot of surprises, a lot of things that can happen. Um, you know, I, I think most of those are probably, if I was a betting man, uh, in the 95 percentile to happen. Um, but, you know, we there's options, Peter, if you want to whittle that down to what actually occurred. There's no way that you're going to hear all of those options at all. I'll definitely go back and, and trim that down to just what happened. Just the yeah. truth. We have nothing if not our journalistic integrity. Yeah, we're journalists. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the first. To get a podcast, you have to go through a lot of schooling uh, <laughs> to be journalists. That's why all the research that we talk about, it gets done because that's what we learned in journalism school. I, there's no way that we've ever made a um, factual mistake on the show. If, if anything, we're opening up people's minds to the different ways that you can pronounce words that they thought they knew. But <laughs> that's that's not us mispronouncing stuff. That's showing uh, all the listeners out there that just because you've done it one way your entire life doesn't mean that you always have to do it that way. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that uh, words have to be pronounced a certain way. I'm really proud of how we've managed to keep this show alive and vibrant, despite the amount of you know effort that goes into the research that we put into every single week. Like I, at one point, I had two, three tabs. It was two, two tabs open with uh, different pages about you know possession, and I, I. Yeah. I must have skimmed it once, like really good skimming. Um, and then I, I have one of the tabs still open because I didn't even skim it. But that's what and being you a journalist is. You, you work with Netscape. You <laughs> I work do work with Netscape. Netscape Navigator. And when you have two windows open in Netscape Navigator, that's some serious slowdown time. So already the intensive research of skimming that Peter's doing. Um, now, imagine that, but imagine having to slowly switch through two Netscape Navigator tabs. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's one of the issues when you're as serious of a journalist as we are, is that, you know, you never feel like you've you, you've done enough research. You always feel like there's another uh, way that you can go. You always feel like you can go deeper and find, you know, the real truth. But today, I think I, think I learned everything there is to know about possession. Do you want to talk about possession? Yeah, I think I can definitely agree that I never feel like I've done enough research. I think it's 100% true. I think that most people listening would agree with that. But, <laughs> um, yeah, let's start talking about possession. We're going to get into Possession, the 1981 Andrew Zulowski movie that blew my mind when I saw it. And I remember the first time I saw it, I'm like, I hope someday I have a friend that would be interested in this movie so that we can have a podcast together to to watch it. Because it feels like you need to have a very specific audience to see this, but it is it is fucking mind-blowing. And we're going to get into it. Peter, why don't you do the five-second recap and I'll do the 90-second recap. Five-second recap. You ready? I am ready. <laughs> Five-second recap. 
of Zulowski's possession. Super Spy and his wife are getting divorced. She fucks a tentacle creature. There's a new Super Spy on the block, and this one is maybe the Antichrist, and then there's World War Three. 90 second recap is uh, Sam Neill plays a spy who comes home from the war. He's already having marital po- uh, problems with his wife. It is pretty intense from the get-go. She leaves, and he finds out that she's been having sex with this other guy, Heinrich, for the better part of a year. Uh, meanwhile, both of them kind of ignore their kid. As I imagine, that kind of happens when you're more focused on your marital uh, relationship falling apart. Uh, eventually, she stops seeing Heinrich as well and starts going to this other uh, kind of abandoned apartment where she is having sex with some weird HP Lovecraft monstrosity. Heinrich goes there uh, and ends up dead. Other people go there to try to track her down because Sam Neill has hired some private investigators. They end up dead. Uh, Sam Neill goes there, realizes what's happening, and still tries to save his wife. In the meantime, uh, this creature has turned into a doppelganger of Sam Neill. Uh, Sam Neill tries to help his wife escape from the police, ends up getting shot. She gets shot, um, and she brings her tentacled creation to Sam Neill. Uh, Sam Neill walks into this house, which is occupied by uh, their son's elementary school teacher, who is also a doppelganger of the wife. So he tries to get in there. The kid, meanwhile, screaming, um, don't open, don't open. The kid goes and kills himself. There's sirens. There's military police. While Sam Neill's doppelganger is rubbing himself against the door, it fades out on uh, the wife's doppelganger. Yeah, that was a pretty good recap, I think. And then, yeah, obviously... Then that we hear the sounds of World War Three starting. Uh, that would be I mean, my that's interpretation. Yeah, that'd be my interpretation. There's nothing in this. Nothing in this movie, I think, can be interpreted too too literally. But I mean, I, I think it's kind of a fun movie to interpret literally because it's so insane and it's so id level. It's striking a raw nerve constantly. I think that you can absolutely interpret it literally. There, there is another meaning going on behind it. I'm usually less interested in, hey, here's a bunch of crazy uh, creature features, science fiction, horror tropes. What's the, what's the meaning behind this? That's usually less interesting to me than interpreting everything as actual on screen. I think that like the, the subtext of the movie is interesting, but the text itself really, really works. The text itself is basically a movie about divorce that becomes a monster movie. Yeah, and the stuff about divorce is still there, whether you literalize the monster and the war and the kind of destruction of the world around them as literal, as literal or not. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, it's 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 not a one-to-one ratio and i think i've kind of always been the way i mean that's one of the reasons that i love movies is that they can show anything that's happening uh in a way that you can't in real life i still remember seeing uh peter pan the disney movie in theaters and having my uncle explain to me after that see this was a dream that wendy had and this was her she was scared to become an adult and this was her way of coming to grips with the fact that she had to grow up was inventing this character and such like that it's like okay she can still come to grips with that with it being literalized and who fucking cares it's a movie the it was all a dream is so much less interesting as interpretation to me than she went to a weird 
weird uh, island that's floating around a star and fought pirates. Yeah, some of it comes to the sort of nagging need that I think people have for, and this a lot of this gets into fan theory stuff, where people insert either fan theories uh, over a work, or you know, creators later say like, "Oh, that work was supposed to be an allegory for the war on terror or whatever." Uh, that sort of stuff can be interesting depending on the work and depending on the interpretation. Uh, and it's fun to chew on because movies are fun to chew on. But a movie could have politics that perfectly align with mine and yet challenge me. And it, and it could have just a beautiful subset of subtext. And if the movie doesn't interest me on a textual level, if I don't find characters interesting, if I don't find photography interesting, if I don't find the musical choices to be decisive, you're going to lose me. Yeah, and I, I, I don't um, – I just – I don't really understand the inclination to immediately when you see something fantastical to figure out how it can be grounded. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't make sense to me in uh, fiction. Um, and again, I think that in most of those cases, I would say that this is the case for possession. Again, there is a lot of subtext about uh, what it's like, what it feels like to go through divorce. Um, I think that is still there if you take everything happening on the screen as literal. Yeah, and I, I – uh... Horror movies is a very unique genre in that I don't think horror movies have to be scary to be considered a horror movie. I don't think that they have to necessarily, like, yeah. keep you up at night. Uh, I think horror movies, uh, most importantly, have to set up, for me at least, tone and atmosphere. And they need to sort of drag me into some sort of nightmare realm. I don't think this movie necessarily scares me as much as certain movies. Like, it definitely has creepy scenes, but it engages me on, a, on an atmospheric level so much. It feels like a warm bath, dread-filled atmosphere from the very beginning that really works. I'm not trying to do a, some sort of brag. I mean, movie in the sense that, like, I watch a movie and then have trouble sleeping that night. Like, that doesn't happen to me anymore. Yeah, uh, it happened really. to me a ton when I was a kid. So if my barometer for uh, whether something's a horror movie or whether a horror movie is effective is being scared, almost every horror movie is going to fail that test. However, I think that what's more interesting to me in horror movies is whether something is uh, un unsettling or makes you uncomfortable or is creepy and kind of gives you that weird, like, maybe chill down your spine, which isn't necessarily – like, I, you don't leave the movie and go, oh, my gosh, I don't know how I'm going to live in this world with what I just saw. But it affects you in the moment, and fear might not be the right word, but it definitely gets under your skin. And I think this movie does that in spades. Yeah, the greatest asset of this movie, I think. And this is something that uh, is an asset for me, and it would probably be a deal breaker for certain people. Uh, and that is that the movie has turned up to 11 the entire time. It's it's wonderfully raw. Isabella Ajani gives my favorite performance of a besieged woman in a horror movie or a woman in peril. Uh, any sort of uh, horror movie where a woman is being pursued and gives a great performance. Um, this is my favorite one of, of all time. Uh, more so than, you know, Janie Curtis in Halloween, Janie Lee in, in Psycho, or Mia Farrow in Rosemary's Baby. Like, more so than any of the, the major well-remembered well horror female protagonists, uh, the female lead of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. A part of this movie attached to me. Uh, I, I feel for Isabella Ajani's character, Anna, I feel for Anna the moment that she comes on screen. And there are shots in this movie where she's just staring directly at the camera and gives a slowly developing creepy stare 
that just ran me cold. I, I, I love her in this movie. It's one of the most insane performances I've ever seen. The movie is mostly, and Sam Neill is awesome too, but I really want to talk up Isabella Johnny. Yeah. Absolutely, and she uh, she won the Best Actress at the Cannes Film Festival for this and another movie, uh, which is a weird way to give out awards, but I, I'm surprised they didn't stop giving out awards in general. I definitely, we're going to get, when we get into some specific scenes, I imagine a lengthy conversation about the, the subway scene, which is a master class in... Uh, almost reaching out of the screen and shaking the people watching a movie. My friend Ryan, when you watch because of research, because of research, because uh, we do our research. We do Ra- research, guys. <laughs> we're researchers. He's my best friend. I've been watching movies with him since we were. 12, 13. Does he, like, does he do research? <laughs> All right. Well, share the opinion. Then. <laughs> there, There's a scene in the movie where Isabella Johnny is having a freak out, which we'll discuss at length later in the movie. And uh, the, the visceral reaction that my friend was giving was, holy fuck. Holy fuck. I haven't seen him react to a movie like that in years. I, I don't, I can't think of anything that's, that's yielded such a visceral reaction out of him. And it was tremendously fun to have been in the room for. I'm so glad I didn't just loan the movie to him that I actually watched it with him. The first time I saw this movie, it f- I, mem- I still remember watching Eraserhead for the first time in college and going to a college class and basically just talking to my friends in that class and like, holy shit, and then this happens and then this happens. Uh, f- from that perspective about how after you watch this movie, you just want to talk about it with someone in, in like this heightened panic state that's really what possession i think does well so yeah this is a great movie to bring someone over and creepily stare at them watch the movie um yeah. assuming you're familiar enough with it. that's kind of what i picture i picture your creepy visage just staring at ryan <laughs> for the entire for the entire runtime of this movie um, yeah this was if not the reason that we decided to do the podcast it was uh, us deciding that this was a movie we wanted to evangelize people this, I, this I, was I, supposed I, to be our episode one i want to talk about how weird this is so the reason that we didn't do it for our first episode was because it is extremely difficult to get a hold of. You can't rent it through any digital rental services that I'm aware of. You can't get it off of Netflix. You can't even buy this off of Amazon unless you go to the marketplace. There is a wonderful company that basically only releases Zulowski movies called Mondo Vision. They do some, they do other director's movies, but they specialize in Zulowski's movies. Oh, my mistake. I guess I didn't do my research. <laughs> um. I just know because I just know because they have a really clunky website. They took them forever to get me my copy of Possession, but I will say it is my favorite blu-ray box i've yep. ever owned yeah it's fantastic design it looks great but you know that's basically the only the only way that i'm aware of to watch this movie is to plop some 40 dollars on a blu-ray that's a hard sell for most people because this feels like a movie that's got a resurgence in the last couple years due to some tcm underground showings uh that's how i was made aware of it someone was talking about it in a comment section at the av club and saying this is a crazy movie i think it was the sam neill random rolls uh, which we can link to. And people were talking about showing on TCM Underground. And as a big Sam Neill fan, I was like, I have to fucking see this movie. And I watched it and it blew me away. And then I immediately regretted deleting it off my TiVo because I, I there was no other way for me to watch it. And I, I spent years because they kept updating that fucking status at Mondo Vision that they were working on it. Just kept saying coming soon. Uh, and the second it got released, I finally I finally got it. But do you think that that has a big effect on the cult status of this? Do you think it hurts it? Uh, most definitely, because I was recommended this movie the first time a decade ago. And I should say horror is my primary interest. I consider myself somebody who like, I'll watch any horror movie as long as it's not like something you made in your backyard. 
Uh, unless it has a pedigree and it was made in your backyard, in which case I'd love to see it. If someone else has filtered it for me, I'd love to see it. Anyways, I like to watch every, every uh, horror so movie. So you're I- not, you're not going to watch Aaron Goes Boo? <laughs> I would love to see Aaron Goes Boo. I'm, I'm making it tonight right after we're done recording. Yeah, I, so I consider myself somebody who tries to watch every horror movie that, uh, you know, anybody has recommended to me because I think that horror is one of the, the, the genres that it's really fun to see, uh, different experiments. And I, this movie was recommended me yeah literally a decade ago and i just saw how hard it was to get a hold of and it just stayed in that horrible limbo that is the netflix disc saved section it's like a roach motel like (laughs) you check in you don't check out of the saved section every once in a while something goes to very long wait for like two weeks then it shows back up there and you're like some son of a bitch you don't even need to subscribe to anything that tells you what dvds are going out of print because if suddenly Something shows up in the very long wait or the save section. It's like, oh, I should buy that. Yeah, exactly. I know what's happened here. (laughs) You're like, a miracle has happened. That's what. Yeah. But yeah, I did not see the movie until basically you, someone who I trust very highly. Do you like Dark City? You should see it. (laughs) Yeah, if I'd known you like Dark City, I wouldn't have bought the movie on a whim. But someone who I trusted very closely and has very, very close taste to mine, Aaron, basically forced me. Uh, Your evangelizing powers of this cult movie were so strong. And... You can't honestly. I barely, I barely knew you, and I was going to, I was going to send you by mail. My disc is like a weird version of a rental store. I was going to be Netflix to you on the on the trust that you would send it back to me afterwards <laughs> because I was so passionate about this movie and wanting someone like you to see it. Yeah, the day that I finally watched it, you were you were pretty pumped that uh, you had somebody else to talk to about it, and yeah, uh, I'm glad that we we did it for the show. Uh, and the other thing I will note about it before we, we get into it more is that if you did see this up until I don't know when there was an international cut that was released on DVD, but there was a good chance that you saw a heavily, heavily edited version of this movie where about a half hour of it was taken out. If you saw this at a video store in the 90s or 80s after it was released, chances are I don't know what you saw. Um, I kind of wish the Blu-ray had like uh, like the Brazil uh, Criterion release where it shows like, here's the edited version that no one liked. I'd love to see that version because I can't imagine a half hour being cut. And they cut it based on offensiveness. So, like, was there even a fucking octopus uh, squid monster in the original American release yeah, of like, Possession? So, like, they probably cut out the miscarriage in the tunnels. I, I don't know what they actually cut out specifically that's something i could have researched but i imagine the <laughs> drink <laughs> we're gonna midway through if we say research or interesting or we'll talk about that later you drink yeah well and if we say we already talked about this and we're referring to something that happened off mic then um yeah, th- then you go listen to a new podcast <laughs> <laughs> then every we we sacrifice the whole show Yeah, so I didn't specifically look into the 90-minute cut because the idea of it made me so angry that I was like, I don't even want to know what they cut out of this movie. Like, I'm so glad that we have the full two-hour cut on a gorgeous Blu-ray. We can probably dive into the individual aspects of the movie here because we're just so excited about the movie as a cultural object that... I think we're getting this is a little, gonna, this we're is getting de- this is, Yeah, this is definitely going to be an effusive praise episode, and that's fine, because like I said, this is a movie unlike any other movie. Let's let's get a big one out of the way. Let's talk about Sam Neill. I don't know how Sam Neill is so perfect at playing these unhinged characters. This, In the Mouth of Madness, Event Horizon, 
Dead Calm would be another one. Sam Neill was one of my favorite actors and still is. Uh, they didn't use him for, for movies like this as much as they should, which should have been every movie ever made where any character is kind of unhinged. And also, from a character standpoint, you know, rewatching it, I forget what a fucking monster he is throughout this movie. I think because... You know, if, if you know Sam Neill and you like him, my guess would be your first exposure to him may have been Jurassic Park, that you overlook a lot of his actions in this movie just because you see him as this trusting figure. I know that probably happened to me the first time I saw this movie, but rewatching it, it was like, oh my gosh, he is just a monster from from the word go. He is verbally abusive. He is screaming at her. He is punching her. He is throwing tables. He's clearly a conversation a- in the restaurant. Yeah, he's clearly a, he's also a murderer, like yep. uh, somebody who has experience. We should say that his character. Well, I'll dive into both of these really quickly. Um, his character is a some sort of he works in the intelligence community. I do not have a good sense which government he works for. I imagine he works for the West because the uh, well, this his, is shot. This is shot in West Germany. We, we we should have said that that this whole movie. Uh, takes place and is shot in uh, West Germany uh, when there was a West Germany. Yeah. And he uh, – so he works for some sort of spy agency. He's trying to get out so he can focus on his family and his wife wants a divorce from him. Uh, so that makes him unhinged immediately. He's a violent asshole. And on the flip side of the coin, the movie is about – on a more meta-textual level, the movie is uh, was written – or at least inspired by Zulowski's divorce. I don't imagine that his ex-wife fucked a tentacle monster, but I think the starting points of the movie feel really, really raw. This isn't even based on true story, Peter. That I mean, they they that tentacle monster played played himself from the role he had in Zulowski's divorce. I had no idea. Well, that was it. Was kind of cool of him to throw uh throw yeah, the his guy name that was Carl, the guy that cooked did, him. Did you see that in the credits? <laughs> His name was Carl. Carl the Satanic Beast as Tentacle Monster. <laughs> oh, I didn't see that. I, I should have looked that up. But he is based loosely on Zulowski's divorce, which I could have imagined when, when someone says, like, oh, this movie is based on my divorce or, like, this is based on what it really happened to me. I feel like what the person is going to do is uh, turn some person in that story into a horrible villain when in real life they were probably... Just, I don't know, a little selfish or uh, like looking out for themselves or whatever. Like, I, But in this movie, Sam Neill's character is such a horrible asshole from the start that it, it makes it a little bit easier to get invested in the mystery about what is going on with uh, Anna. You, you need to feel for Anna at some point or a lot of this movie doesn't work. And I felt for Anna because of what she, the, the sort of insane asshole that she was dealing with. And I... It, probably is really tempting for a creator to make his stand-in character be the nice guy who's dealing with uh, all of these bad and crazy people around him. Instead, Zulowski's like, I want to make a movie about my divorce, assuming he's, he's positing himself as the man. The man is an asshole in this movie. He's an absolute asshole. And I think he kind of represents, which makes sense, that Anna has kind of been controlled by him for the duration of their marriage that he creates his will or he um he makes his will known and any deviation from what he wants is met with either verbal abuse or uh violence when they're at lunch and she says that he's leaving he immediately says that he's going to abandon his kid um (laughs) not because he means it but because he will say and do anything to hurt her i mean the 
just just a stereotypical abusive asshole who uses every trick in his book to keep uh, keep Anna under her, his control. And I think it's very interesting because Heinrich, the person that she is having an affair with, he is kind of this uh, free loving, almost like uh, '70s hippie. Um, he he almost seems like at one point he's gonna you know try to make love to Sam Neill's character. He's as close um, as the movie gets to a comic relief character. He he is, which is telling about what this movie finds funny. But he kind of represents freedom. He's not trying to control Anna, um, although that switches later in the movie. But he, at the beginning, he is he represents freedom. So you have this dichotomy of Sam Neill's character, who is control. You have um, Heinrich, who is freedom. And ultimately, um, those two options, based on what Anna's experienced in her life, she kind of goes into chaos and the chaos of exploring herself and being her own person, because that's what having self-reliance is. There is an element of chaos. I do think that those characters represent those general feelings for Anna. Yeah, she's having clearly an internal struggle, and she runs to either character. She runs to her husband or her, her mister, depending on the situation. And Anna's losing her grasp of... Uh, her humanity and her sanity as the movie goes on and she sort of veers where she'll suddenly seem to really care about mark and want to try and make things work and then mark will just like shit all over things and totally ruin it and there are also times where mark thinks the things are getting better and he's trying he's trying really hard to to keep things at this status quo equilibrium and she's just like i can't be in a relationship with you like she's freaking out and he and it's it's some it's almost borderline comical like the movie very easily could be comical if you are uh, not invested in anna at all the movie could be kind of hysterical because like there's a scene there's scenes where like mark sitting calmly on the couch just kind of staring at the floor giving like a diatribe about how he feels and she's just like wrangling with her hands and screaming and, and like for me that was super affecting i think that could be said a lot of the movie and i think i think that those don't even have to be mutually exclusive i think that you can be affected by the creepiness that's being portrayed on screen while still think that there is a level of amusement to be had uh, I'm thinking of of Mark on the rocking chair. He 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 rocks in a, a rocking chair like an aggressive, the most aggressively I've ever seen anyone rock. He is yeah. eyes wide open and just flinging himself backwards and forwards. And I think there is an element of comedy in there because again, I've if you saw someone using a rocking chair that way, you would probably call the police just as a general. I'm terrified right now. But <laughs> this, this it, is sort of like high rise where if you see somebody working out in a suit, you're like, something is wrong here. See someone rocking that hard in a rocking chair, you're like, that's not what it's for. You're abusing this rocking chair. It's supposed to be something for leisure and relaxation, and you're just going at it. Yeah, and you also have to, I mean, if you've ever tried to do that, you're normally going to topple backwards. So you also have to know that he's practiced this, he has an element of control. Uh, which is also very terrifying that he is able to uh, rock that fast and that chaotically while still maintaining uh, a seat on the actual chair. It, it has this lolling sort of carnival quality to it, where it's just like this like kind of eerie repetition. Uh, Mark is going downhill as Anna is going downhill. 
But I do want to step aside and talk about Heinrich really quickly. My first note on Heinrich is he is so full of shit because he is. And, and I think the movie kind of wants you to to realize that like Anna ran to him because he was sort of a liberating force on her life and that she was feeling lonely and empty inside. And he his sense of liberation, you know, she even says like, oh, uh, Heinrich taught me how to, to drive his motorcycle. Like clearly they're. They were doing drugs together. They were encouraging each other's uh, id-driven sort of fantasies. And Hyrick, yeah, like I said, is as close to the movie gets as comic relief because he's a truly ridiculous character. Um, well, and the freedom that he's representing turns out, as I mentioned, turns out to be fake. He, the second that Anna is, uh, second that Anna is leaving him for someone else, which turns out to be the tentacle monster, um, then he enlists Mark and wants help to figure out what's going on. Uh, he's fine with being the mistress in this relationship, but but he's not fine with Anna just being able to do whatever she wants. I think it's an easy lie that, pe- that people who are trying to escape controlling relationships can buy. And I think kind of assholes like Heinrich are, are good at taking advantage of that, where it's like, yeah, I'm, I'll do whatever. You you have your own life. They're almost they're preying on on women in a different way where they're give, they're offering them this life of freedom and, and telling them what they want to hear while still being manipulative and controlling. And I think for men who have uh, insecurities about cheating and jealousy, that this guy is almost supposed to be subverting that. I think that guys that uh, are jealous of, you know, their girlfriends, their ex-girlfriends, or they have a sense of, yeah, like a mistrust about them often picture this sort of man that is more masculine than them somehow. Like he has more, he has bigger muscles or he makes more money or people picture the person of, or maybe he's younger, the person of that would steal their girlfriend or their wife away from them as being this sort of... uh, alpha male and someone that can subvert the person that thinks they might be being cheated on in this situation he is like he can physically beat the shit out of mark with the sort of like frilly martial arts i don't know exactly what he's doing but it's very like flowery hand movement kind of things but he's not like super wealthy like he's a weird european psychologist who lives with his mom like there's a really great line where where mark finally confronts him and he says is she here all the time uh even when you're fucking anna uh <laughs> and the weird the, the heinrich goes but of course <laughs> like yeah it's just it's just what you do some of that's probably just you know europeans yeah and i think that it's supposed to be specifically like threatening to mark it's not a question of whether or not this guy's more masculine than him so much uh, he is in the sense that he can beat the shit out of him, but it's more the idea that this guy represents a freedom that he can't, that Mark, a strictly conforming and controlled guy until he's not, uh, can't seem to embrace. Yeah, he, well, I mean, it's, it speaks, it says that, that Mark is not a great secret agent if he's getting his ass kicked by psychologists, though. Yeah, yeah and, but um, I, I think the flip side of that is that Mark is not... Like, he's, he's a true secret agent and that, like, he's not, like, the guy who, he's not like a James Bond where he's good at everything and he'll, uh, you know, he'll beat up every guy and he'll sleep with every woman and he'll say the perfect thing at the right time and he's always calm, cool, controlled. It's that he's a human being that works in the intelligence community and it seems like they, they're really happy with him at the beginning of the movie. He probably doesn't need to beat up people that often because he's just gathering intelligence and shit. Like, he's good with a gun. 
He's good with so, <laughs> like. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, first off, how dare you uh, reply to one of my dumb jokes with a serious point? <laughs> character. I really do um, want to talk about. I want to talk about how Mark is a spy. I think it's super interesting. Like, I, I think it is interesting. I think it's especially interesting because of how. Um, I I think the second time I watched it, I was like, oh yeah, he's a spy. There's so many other things going on in this movie. It is super easy to forget that he is a spy who's who's kind of quits his job to be with his family, and then later on, it seems like whatever agency he's a part of want, wants him back because of you know again tentacle fuck monster. <laughs> um, it, it is easy to forget that that is also part of the movie, and I don't know how that kind of plays into the fact that World War Three or the apocalypse or some version of that happens. Yeah, and I I don't exactly know. I think the Berlin Wall setting uh, is something that I don't understand at all, and I can't really speak to. Uh, it certainly makes the whole. It is scene. great. It is to make it makes the whole movie feel like it's on an alien world because yeah. the buildings are designed in a way that we're not used to. Everything kind of feels abandoned and boarded up, but not in a dilapidated way. In a almost like um, preserved cathedral way. Some of the architecture at least seems like it was built modernly, and that it has a creeping soviet-influenced modernity to it like his apartment block is very like eastern european utilitarian looking sort of building it's super super tall and kind of brutal looking like a lot of the, the stuff in this movie kind of looks that way um but on, then on the inside especially his apartment it kind of looks like it reminded me most of 2001 like the inside of the spaceship it feels so uh, clinical and cold and sterile. And it's all white, yeah. It uh, and uh, part of it's the way that they that uh, Zulowski shoots it, which is, I mean, fuck, I can't believe that this is still the only movie I've seen by him because I have to imagine that if if his movies are half as well directed as this one, uh, he's made some pretty goddamn good ones. Uh, but it the way that he moves through the apartment, it just it feels like almost a documentary on the space pod. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 this cold, sterile quality. I think really helps when the apartment starts to go to shit, which is another it's another commonality between this movie and Repulsion. How the apartment starts just getting messier and messier, and then the only difference with this is that uh, the uh, doppelganger for Anna comes in and like sort of cleans things up, but it's not enough. Like, the apartment keeps falling to shit. And I think that sort of sterile quality is nice on a visual level because you'll see, like, a scene where there's food being thrown around or there's toys on the floor and shit. It just really stands out that this, this apartment is, is in disarray. This, this white space has been – is being corrupted by all this dirtiness, this filth. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is It is unsettling. And when it, I mean – it's it's not this is a little dirty it is like there's no more floor left which is especially interesting or especially creepy i think uh when con- uh, when contrasted against the white walls everything else still feels sterile there's a lot of light there's a lot of windows but then the floor is just here's where we keep all of our books now it's a gorgeously shot movie i can't yeah. there's a lot of long takes in it it's not all long takes there's there's some very decisive cuts being done that adds to the jarringness of it but there's some really terrific long takes in the movie 
and Zulowski's ability to command a scene where there's all these elements bouncing around and have, you know, he goes from like, there's a scene later on that it goes from like a dark hallway with a light over a trash can back into the bathroom. And then he's in the stall and it all just blends together perfectly. It's, it's a, it's a gorgeously shot movie. Yeah. And their, and their, uh, clean, sterile apartment, um, contrast nicely with uh where where she ends up going to have sex with the tentacle lovecraft goo monster <laughs> which is this dilapidated abandoned uh building i mean still open still kind of gorgeous in that old gothic uh european way it's huge not, too <laughs> yeah but definitely yeah they, they, when that investigator needs to look through every room that's like that's about a 75 minute scene. Um, <laughs> he's opening it's a, every it's a single big window. Place is what yeah. we're saying. Yeah. He's opening um, every single window and you're just like this place is goddamn huge. It's a it's a corner unit with that looks over the Berlin Wall. Again, I don't understand a lot of the Berlin Wall stuff. Berlin as a setting really works for the movie in terms of tone and atmosphere. So it works for me on that sort of literal level. Subtextually, I don't really know. Yeah, it may just be that's where he had the permits to shoot. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs> that's that's the overlooking in subtext. See, like, so Zulowski lives down the street. I guess <laughs> that's why I made that choice. So Zulowski's um, like Adam Sandler. He just shoots where he wants to go. Well, hopefully that's not what he calls vacation. Um, <laughs> honey, we're gonna get a paid trip to the Berlin Wall for four months <laughs> while I shoot this movie. Um, this movie about you divorcing me. Yeah, um, this this movie that will be banned in multiple countries and hacked to shit. Yeah. So the last the last really big thing I kind of want to talk about before we start going into some scenes is um, how their son fits into all of this because I think one of the most and this this might get a little real for a second, um, so I apologize for that. But uh, I I do have a child, and I think the scenes of how. When they were focused on their own issues, the way that the kid becomes a prop and or completely forgotten is like my biggest fear of parenting that I, I don't think that's ever occurred, thankfully, um, where where we've ever used our child as a prop or that we just sometimes forget when we're dealing with our own shit. But that is like that's like the big fear of like that you will at some point have a fight or get into your own head or worry about your own stuff that all of a sudden, even for a moment, you're going to put your priorities and your fight over your kid. It doesn't mean that those priorities aren't important, but they should never take the places like remembering to fucking come home or remembering to feed your kid. And the way this movie takes that aspect of it and kind of really doubles down on it where they do forget their kid. The kid is just running around in like soiled underwear and they're not feeding him. And he's just kind of like making do on his own. Um, and that, that happens from the start of the movie. And there's whole stretches where uh, their son isn't even featured. Like this is the, this is the literalizing of those fears that when you get into your own relationship shit, your kid doesn't even matter anymore. And it's almost because that child is a reflection of the relationship that you're working to mend at that moment that if anything, it's almost like I don't want to even deal with this because the reason that this person exists, I'm not invested in right now. Th that whole that whole part of the movie and the relationship with their kid, uh, the kid's name is Bob, which is a fucking bizarre name for a child. <laughs> it's in, so serious. Yeah. I, I, I always kept thinking that they were talking about their like 
uh, their their grandfather on hospice they were taking, <laughs> not, not their son. Uh, but I think you know it was effective. The whole thing was very effective and dark and scary and cold before I had children. Watching it now, especially, it's like it's almost like a warning video for always remember there's another life that you're uh, in charge of no matter what else you have going on in your life. Yeah, I, I could totally, I, I was thinking about that when I was watching it today, actually. Occasionally, we have different perspectives on this stuff in that you've had ex- life experiences that I haven't had. So, th- that I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. I'm glad you got into that because there's that, yeah, that, there's that really heartbreaking scene where Bob is sitting on the floor and he's covered in like food because the little kids don't wipe their own faces. <laughs> he's just like playing with his toys and covered in food because mummy was supposed to come home and mark has been absent for what did she say three weeks something like that yeah yeah the, the, whoever was watching out for him the maid or whatever said he'd been gone for like he'd been basically in a drug or booze or depression spiral for three weeks in a separate apartment and and so you don't know how long bob has been neglected and the the scenes where they're fighting there's an extra bit of tension where you're like, is Bob at school? Is Bob just playing with his trucks in another room? Like, why? And yeah, and the only time that Mark and uh, Anna give a shit about Bob is when they're both feeling somewhat stable. When they're, or when they're trying to use him against Yes, 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 yes. So when they're feeling somewhat stable or they're trying to like, yeah, play an emotional warfare with one another, they uh, treat Bob as like the most important thing in the world. And then most, but most of the movie, when like they have shit to do, Bob is left on the wayside. Like I think Mark, Mark at his most responsible is basically just abusing Margie into like coming over and taking care of bob and he outwardly says he hates margie that's that's but they might be having sex and it almost seems like they've been having sex on and off for a while yeah it's a which again is a normal thing when you have sex with people so yeah just because hate and sex are not mutually exclusive it's true but i think i think i I should say too that like mark even even later when he starts using uh anna's doppelganger uh the teacher at bob's school as his kind of pawn or you know, she's kind of she's kind of the reflection of the person that he wants uh, Anna to be, which is kind of doting, and perfectly motherly, says, and just and she eventually commands. Yeah, yeah. It almost seems like Mark's going to forget about Anna and just just kind of be with this doppelganger, which is a totally healthy thing that you should do. Even at that moment when he's kind of at peace and happy to have her in his life, he is still going to Bob and asking who he thinks is prettier. He asks his son whether he thinks the new person is prettier than his mom. Now, I, there's a whole another level because they are played by the same actress and look the exact same. Minus I'll tell the, you what, the green eyes, that's the only difference. Like, at his best, when he's bonding and just kind of seems to enjoy being in the presence of his own son, the fact that he's like, who's prettier? Uh... Uh, dad's new girlfriend or your mom? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's it's still fucking sick and twisted that he's still kind of using him as a pawn in his um and he's kind of using him as a way to like obviously at that moment he thinks that the new person is prettier or he just wants some sort of um echo chamber that to convince him but either way it's fucking ugh. yeah that goes back to what you were saying earlier yeah he's asking bob basically for emotional support until you are all your adults probably shouldn't really be happening like on a any sort of like conscious level like obviously kids can help 
make you a happier person and kids provide a support that you might not even realize on like a subconscious level but physically reaching out to your kids for like a little ego stroking like you're a 16 year old and like you just need somebody to tell you that you're pretty and you're doing the right thing is so pathetic yeah my parents are still together i'm 33 if my parents broke up and my dad was like hey do you think this new piece of tail is hotter than your mom um, I would still throw up, and I am an adult. Yeah, that's so the true. Fact that to ask that of a ten-year-old kid, uh, in the middle of like a, a violent, emotionally draining divorce that he is in the center of, is especially fucked up. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, it's not appropriate under any context at any age. But yeah, my point was just like maybe when you're both adults, you can uh, you can ask your son weird questions like that. But Bob is in a perfectly uh, fuck-upable age, and Mark realizes it. During the, their first argument in that cafe that we see, their first real, like, loud screaming argument we see in the cafe, where he's, like, throwing glassware on the floor, uh, he says, basically, yeah, I don't want to raise Bob. He's already going to be fucked up. He doesn't need some Sunday daddy around. Yeah, he says, I'm never going to see him again. Like, yeah. that's the first response. Um, again, I, I, I think I mentioned that earlier, that I, that, that speaks to him wanting to throw out threats like fine oh you're gonna leave me you're a parent by yourself now yeah which is a thing that happens for a lot of um pathetic douchebags that they basically are like i either i can't hack it as a parent or i hate the mother of my child so much that i'm going to hurt her by making her a single mother i won't even be like a just a okay dad that helps out sometimes yeah, that yeah, stuff. He, that stuff is really, really pathetic and transparently so. Yeah, and it, it's moments like that, and all all the stuff that we're talking about before we get into the really crazy stuff. Um, I, I was I, I really tried to find who said this. It may have been multiple people that said this, but this feels like some uh, some critics said that this feels like scenes from a marriage um, combined with a monster movie. Uh, that's why I said earlier that this like you don't need the subtext because even if you take out the stuff about the monsters all the scenes as just a couple in the midst of a emotionally retching a breakup with kids involved are extremely harrowing it's the the breakup stuff uh really does hurt i'm like uh, and then that's part of the reason that in a lot of these horror movies they do everything backwards they do uninteresting characters and then they just try and project horror onto these uninteresting characters and you know that can still work movies can have boring characters and if they just do a few nice uh little filmmaking tricks to make us empathize with them the fact that they're shallow kind of boring characters is fine in this movie they it, it starts from this place of like, we're going to tell you every ugly thing about these two people. You're going to see, see really intimate scenes in the bedroom between them. You're going to see their most vulnerable fights. We don't want you to pick favorites in this divorce. We just want you to understand who the fuck they are. And then the horror starts to creep in more and more and more. And it's a wonderfully structured movie in that regard. It, it, it makes you give a shit about a divorce so much so that you're like, when the monsters start showing up, you're like, oh, God, I almost forgot that this movie isn't just about two people tearing each other down. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and that's what's so funny. If you watch this movie, because Possession is a generic enough title that if you didn't know what this movie becomes, it is 45 minutes before the monster shows up. And he shows up in just you see him in this back room when the private investigator goes there. At this point, it's it's like goop in bad light you can't really tell what's going on 
But all you know is that he opens the door and there's like slime and goop and there's something in there and Anna kills the private investigator to protect what's ever in there. In a very grisly scene with a wine bottle. It's pretty gross. It is. It's another 20 minutes before we see the monster again or it's remarked upon. So I would love to show someone this movie that had no idea what it was because it is such a good movie about divorce and about, you know, a very selfish controlling person and stuff like that, that all of a sudden there's a monster and it's for 30 seconds. And then I can't imagine what it would be like for someone over those next 20 minutes. Would they just be like, wait, wait, wait a sec. Yeah. Would this be like an Was there a monster? Did I just see a goop monster? I could see it being a similar level of when uh, Audition, Takashi Miike's movie, started premiering at festivals. And people were like, oh, he made kind of a creepy little romantic comedy. What the fuck is in that bag? I could see it being a true moment of revelation where people were just completely derailed by the movie. The movie is challenging in a lot of ways. Like, this this is similar to High Rise, I guess, in the sense, like, if somebody didn't like this movie... I'd be like, sure, you're allowed to not like this insane fucking movie. Yeah, I think that's a really, I think that's a really good point. I think we should start getting into specific scenes that we want to talk about. Uh, Before we do that, I think we should go to our um, commercial break. Peter, who's our sponsor this week? Oh, our sponsor is nobody. We're not beholden to any, any advertiser. Oh, see, since we were doing this one two weeks in advance, um, I'm, I'm being very optimistic that in the next week, Someone will give us a bunch of money to do this show. So I'm leaving this break here just because if, if we were going to release this a week from now, I feel like that would be pretty pie in the sky. But two weeks from now, I feel like I feel like we'll definitely have someone giving us money to make this podcast by then. Yeah, I mean, I we're not beholden to any sponsor. Like, we're not sellouts, but like we would love to be sellouts. Yeah. Uh, Peter would love to amend that uh, in editing for it to say, we are not beholden to any sponsors except for stamps.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, let's get into some specific scenes. I think what we're chomping at the bit to discuss is the fucking tunnel scene, which is one of the only scenes I know for sure was cut out of the original American release. I, I could see that because it is grisly and emotionally and the end of it is the, the miscarriage is pretty tough to watch. The, I think what's amazing about maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but I think what's amazing about the scene is that before the miscarriage occurs, it is turn away uh, hard to watch. Like I can think of scenes just her having an extended uncut uh, by uncut, I mean the director does not pan away uh, freak out that just gets more and more upsetting. I feel like it rivals uh, the circumcision scene in um, in Antichrist and the entirety of Airbud Golden Receiver as being that difficult to watch. <laughs> it is truly hard to watch. It's it's a scene that is so emotionally raw, and I stand by my statement that this is my favorite performance by. Maybe anybody in a horror movie, but specifically oh, any sort of woman in peril in a horror movie, because this scene is a one woman show with zero dialogue 
unless you count insane chants and grunts uh, being dialogue. The whole movie, she seems to be trying to get her own life back on track uh, on occasion. Like, she'll go home and play with, uh, she'll go home and play with Bob and give him lunch and tell him to go play. And, like, occasionally she'll do that. But really, it seems like she's finally, right before this tunnel scene, she's finally realized that, like, her body is fucked up. Like, there is something going wrong inside her mental illness or a true possession by some sort of, of, uh, you know, otherworldly force. And she goes into a church and whines and sort of makes these whimpering noises before a, a statue of Jesus Christ, a crucifix uh, in the inside of a church. And it is so pathetic to watch because it's just like a, a child or something. There's this sort of raw primalness to her begging to God to, to release her without any words. And it's, uh, and then all God is in this scene and for the rest of the movie is just a a statue. This is a movie that's very nihilist in that in that sense. Uh, it's very nihilist in a lot of senses, but there is there is no god to save her. So when she goes down in the, the subway tunnels after this horrible moment of vulnerability, wherein God is ignoring her cries, she just convulses with an internal pain, like she's like trying to get something out of her. She's throwing her hands wildly in these sort of convulsions that... Do you think Ajani did a, and Zalowski did a research? Because it kind of reminded me of an anthropology class. You see, like, African tribes, this person has been, you know, possessed by a local demon. It kind of reminded me of that. Yeah, I, I don't know. I do know that she, uh, Isabella, said that this movie damaged her. I think she said that she can't even watch this movie in a way, and I'm not surprised by that because this scene, I'm assuming this was not a one take and done. I'm assuming that she did this a few times, and I can't imagine putting your mind and body through this. This feels less like acting and more like actually somehow having yourself possessed with some sort of demon that is convulsing your body and making these almost like inhuman noises, uh come out of her they don't cut away for a very long time and like i said it is unsettling to watch before blood pus and green slime starts leaking out of her from everywhere i mean it comes up over her shoulders it doesn't give you any reprieve it does not let you turn away it focuses on a woman in pain and it makes you watch. And it, it goes on for, for like three or four minutes in a way that it always seems like, okay, every time I've seen this movie a few times, I always think it's going to cut away. And then I still have a couple of minutes to go. It feels like a feat that you've accomplished when you're done with it. And I don't mean that in a reductive way, but you get a very quick desire to turn away, to avert your eyes. It feels like all of your evolutionary senses are tingling and saying, I know it's a movie, but please someone go get this woman help. Yeah. And, uh, and it, I agree. There's a sort of primal quality to it, especially because it has no dialogue, just like the scene in the church. There's no dialogue. It's just a woman in the throes of some sort of possession episode. I I couldn't look away from the screen. It was like a, somewhere between a car crash and like a whirling dervish. It has this sort of like dance-like 
quality to it. This this like inelegant elegantness. <laughs> She's flinging her body just in the air. I've never seen anything like that in a movie before. And, and it taps into somewhere deep, deep within you. I think part of being a movie fan is that you rewatch movies till they lose their power in some respects. The Great Curse. <laughs> the, yeah. And, and I just can't imagine that even if somehow this movie became sort of passe to you, I don't think most Lynch movies have ever lost their power for me. Um, and I, I think that would probably be the case here. Part of it because possession is not a I'm in any mood movie. Like it's it's going to it's going to engage with you whether whether you're ready or not. So it's not like a great movie to throw on after a long day at work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and the funny the other funny thing about the scene is that this is the possession, the titular possession. So if you saw this in the 80s or 90s and you were in the United States, you were like, what the fuck does possession mean? Yeah, I. it's pretty incredible. She's just swept up by this force that's bigger than her. And you can just see it ravishing her body. It's, it's pretty insane to see. And I think that that's the sort of scene that is a make or break moment in the film. If you are not on board with uh, this sort of uncomfortable rawness of uh, Ajani's performance then you are not going to enjoy this movie at all. And also, a lesser actor could easily make this seem goofy. Uh, I can't think of an actor that... Like, Linda Blair is amazing in The Exorcist, obviously, but, like, that movie opened itself up to parody. I feel like parodying this scene would just feel mean because of how, like, raw and clearly emotionally exhausting it would be to even just perform emotionally and physically exhausting i feel like a parody of the scene would just come off as like mean to me almost like well i think you'd have to be kind of a psychotic to see this scene and be like i got some jokes oh yeah i'd be like we're gonna go crazy bitches dancing in the tunnels this would be the movie that if it came out in like 2005 in america and it became like a moderate success those fucking hacks that did like the spartans and stuff they'd have a scene i don't even know their names but they're douches they would have a scene where she's like dancing to like gangnam style in the tunnel or something yeah it would just feel weird whereas like the exorcist is really scary when you're watching it but then in the context of like repossessed or something you're not like oh this cheapens it just like oh yeah there's a there's a purity to this scene that i think is i just immediately synced with a johnny and i should say like she is one of the most beautiful screen presences i've seen in a movie like so seeing her just like wield this power of it's an important part of the movie that she wields this power of sexuality and this power of just uh, raw nerve insanity in such an amazing way in scene to scene. The only other movie I've seen her in is actually Ishtar. Um, she's an Ishtar. She's an Ishtar. Um, and I only, I only saw that recently, and I was like, who is this gorgeous woman? And I was like, oh, holy shit! Yeah. Um, and because I, I only brought up the gorgeous they, thing because it's so powerful. She's so. Yeah. Well, they they kind of well. What's funny is they underplay it because they definitely overplay it a little more in Ishtar, where she's the love interest to Warren Beatty's uh, character. And here they underplay, it and she's still it, it gives it gives a sense of why potentially Sam Neill and other people are willing to murder for her. But again, that that almost speaks again to the negative of their character because Sam Neill clearly does not prize anything but her looks. I think that is the point. That obviously, I mean, Sam Neill he creates. A version of her that, um, out of the ether, that is just a beautiful version who doesn't talk back and helps and does what he says. So I think that it's clear that that is what's important to Sam Neill. I would definitely read, if you haven't got a chance, I'll say this to anyone listening, if you haven't read the uh, random roles with uh, Will Harris's random roles with Sam Neill, 
on the AV Club, I would definitely uh, do that. Uh, it's a great read from the get-go. Will Harris is an amazing uh, interviewer of celebrities and the roles that they've had. Uh, but he mentions Possession, and Sam Neill talking about it uh, for a couple paragraphs is fantastic. I would love to read that. I don't know how I've missed that. I would like to talk about as well uh, another scene in the movie that I do not understand at all. And I want to know. I'm actually asking because I want you to kind of help me if you can. Well, when a squid monster really loves a woman. <laughs> There's a scene where he's Sam Neill is watching footage that I believe Heinrich shot of Isabella Johnny working in a ballet studio with uh, a bunch of girls. So I think the assumption is that that was her career, is that she's uh, some sort of um, ballet instructor in a school. And she is basically uh, abusing a girl through ballet. She's trying to like make her hold a very painful position over and over again. And it's remarkably hard to watch, uh, especially because it's a uh, supposed to be essentially a uh, camcorder footage so Isabella Johnny is like turning to the camera and staring right into the camera. And those scenes in the movie where she just gets to work her eyes on you are have a, a really dark magic to it. Well, and she's giving her inner monologue of like what she's thinking as she's kind of abusing these ballet students. Yeah, she is very calmly torturing this ballet student. And then after she has been doing this move, this really, really painful move for a while, she goes and compliments another student right in front of her. <laughs> and then the student that was being tortured just like fucking screams and runs out and uh isabella johnny goes all whiplash and is like she's like I, I taught her a lesson by abusing her she always knows what she's capable of now like here's the thing though that is seen on a home movie i don't know any home movie where someone gives an inner monologue about their motivations behind an action to the camera i know that she kind of says it's because and she kind of puts it on him she says that because you've been gone. So the implication, I think, a little bit in the movie is that she is recording these kind of nasty grams to him because she doesn't like that she's been abandoned by him while he goes off and fights whatever secret mission that he's fighting. I actually saw those scenes as they were not actually what had happened. I think it was a combination of uh, movies, home movies that he's watching as he, you know, kind of sits in his own sorrow, stews in his own mess. Um, and, you know, watches videos of his now ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-wife, that Mark was putting those motivations to Anna's character. And because we know that he does not have a good opinion of her, thinks very poorly, even while wanting her back. I, I didn't see those videos as a actual record of everything that occurred. I, I saw that as giving a little bit of background of what Anna had done, and then Mark putting his own twist on what a terrible person that she potentially is or how she's always been there to hurt people and to hurt him. Okay, so the movie has a, an impressionistic streak that kind of runs through it that like can be kind of confusing if you're really trying to follow what's literally happening. There's a chance that the doppelganger, Anna's doppelganger, the teacher, there's a pretty good chance that she doesn't actually look like Anna at all and it's just Mark being crazy and projecting Anna's beauty onto this teacher. Um, there's a chance that that's, that's what's happening and I think in this scene, I chose to read the tape as a literal thing that Heinrich was shooting as psychoanalysis because Heinrich is hmm. is uh, some form of therapist. Uh, I'm going to guess a bad one. Wild guess. He doesn't seem that uh, to have that healthy of a relationship with his patients. <laughs> it seems like he just bangs patients and, and does drugs with them. That's not healthy. I need to see a new psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw this as her turning the camera basically Heinrich saying off screen saying why did you do that to her? Why are you doing this? Like explain not necessarily in an accusatory way but just saying like explain 
what you're doing. And then she has this long, this long speech that's very like stream of consciousness because it sounds like she's building the thoughts out from there. And she turns to the camera and says, the reason that I'm interested in you is because you say I for me. And I do not understand. Like I thought I, that was I thought that was saying that he controls her. Yeah, that's that's possible. You she say likes I it. for me. She doesn't say I because I is a term that you use to refer to yourself. It's an empowering. An, I term. want. Yeah, and she's saying that he he says that for her. Yeah, and then she's, she's but talking a, about but this. again. I know I, I I totally understand that. Um, that my motivations are suspect in that saying that I don't think this that everything that she was saying was literal. I think that was Mark putting his own version of Anna into the proceedings of the home movies that he was watching. While I think that the tentacle monster and the doppelgangers and the antichrist and the end of the world, that's all literally happening in this movie. So, I, I mean, I am picking and choosing what I think is happening, but I think the way that it shot, the way that Mark is, again, rocking violently in his chair... And the way that there isn't that clue of Heinrich saying, so what do you think about this? She just is all of a sudden turning to a camera that seems to be observing her teaching this class and almost like almost like grabs it like she's holding it right in front of her face and gives a manifesto of how she's there to hurt people. It just seems to me like that's all Mark. It's possible. It's possible. I, I, I still disagree. I feel like it's it's physical footage that he's looking at, but it's a maybe. Good, I mean, it, either, either way works for me. It's yeah. just uh, either way works because yeah. she's not an innocent at by that point in the movie. She is killing people to protect her creation. Um, she is whether she used to be, and that this is what years of emotional uh, spousal abuse by Mark has turned her into. Um, or maybe she's always been like this and we're now seeing a side of it that we haven't seen because we've just seen Mark hurting her. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't know if the movie knows the answer to that. I guess I just see Mark as such a monster throughout the movie that and, – and, and, and we definitely see what Mark wants from Anna. And it's not great that this falls in line more with – that than everything we know about Anna at that point. So do you think Mark has always been as as extreme as he is in the movie? Well, I think that he's always been as controlling as he's as he's as we see him in the movie, but now he's losing control. So he's taking more and more extreme measures to reassert control over his wife and the situation. He treats Anna's doppelganger nice because she never does anything to assert her own beliefs or thoughts. He she is there to look after their son. She is there to help clean up. She's there to provide and have sex with Mark. She has one um, one scene where she disagrees with Mark, but she does it in such a way that Mark likes the, that little bit. Yeah. Where he says, basically, yeah. I think all women are evil and they're all just out to get me. And typical MRA stuff, because as we know, MRAs, MRAs are uh, assholes and rapists. And Mark says, I think all women are out to get me. And she says, one of my favorite lines in the movie, she's, the doppelganger says... Uh, the only thing that women have in, co- in common is menstruation, which is a really great line because she's just like shutting him down. Like, this isn't some conspiracy against you. This is the way that you build relationships with women. You build relationships with women on a shaky foundation. And the reason that women react adversely to that is because of things that you have done. And he sort of, for the first time in the movie, really like seems to bend for her bend his will for her and i really but but i think the important thing is that she says it in a vague way i mean the message is clear whether mark gets it or not i guess is open to interpretation but she stays 
Yeah. And Mar- but I think Mark goes through I think Mark goes through a character arc where Mark learns to be less controlling by the end of the movie. And it's hard to really pinpoint specific moments, but I do think that by the end of the movie, there's a scene where Mark's basically saying, like, you should go be with him. He doesn't know yet that it's a tentacle monster. He's like, you should go be <laughs> with him. And then he he flips it on on its end towards the end of the movie where he's basically committing violence. He's turning against his spy organization. He's turning against the cops. He's turning against everybody to physically defend his wife that he knows is a, a horrible murderer. His wife kills Margie in the apartment. He goes and he cleans up after the corpses by blowing up the, the house. He kills... He uh, still doesn't know it's a tentacle monster at that point. Oh, that's true. He kills Heinrich... And so he kind of goes on this thing where he's trying to save her, uh, but but I think he's trying to save her for the tentacle monster, not for himself. He's basically like, we're all going to leave together. We're going to form this triumvirate and we're all going to leave town. And he, he, there's a scene where is the thing here? And she's like, yes. And so she tells him to close the door of the kitchen. So him and Bob can be in the kitchen while her and the monster leave the apartment. It's very chilling because you don't get to see the thing in the apartment. It is. I, I, I do disagree with you, though, on Mark's motivation. I think that it's true that then he starts trying to – I mean, he takes a lot of personal risk. He murders Heinrich um, He because Heinrich knows of her crimes, not out of revenge, but to protect her. He blows up the apartment. He starts uh, – he turns against the spy organization. I didn't see any of that as actually him – all of a sudden going through a character arc where he wants what's best for her and wants to help her. I saw it as, oh, look, she's murdered these people. She's in trouble. If I save her from this situation, I will have her back under my control. It's possible, but I also, I I feel like there's enough conflicting information going on wherein he doesn't turn on her when he finds out she's with the tentacle monster. He doesn't demand that the tentacle monster go away. He basically says like, he he doesn't really do that with Heinrich either. But he basically says, he basically says like us three or four, I guess, whatever with with Bob said, all of us will leave town together. He's not. But see, I thought the us three was not, I I thought he was referring to Bob. I mean, he's definitely referring to Bob, but I think he just means like, I don't think, I, I don't know. Maybe I misread that, but I, I, I saw it as him basically there there's a scene where he basically says like you should be with the tentacle monster he doesn't know what the tentacle monster is he just says him <laughs> i wish i kind of wish there was a scene where he said where he said in all, all the seriousness because the movie takes what could be a goofy concept very serious so uh, the the idea of him saying honey i think you should be with the tentacle monster there's that movie uh, call girl of, call girl of cthulhu i haven't seen that i'm sure that there's a scene like that in there like I want to be with the tentacle monster, but I just don't. Well, it have some terrible Latin name. Yeah, that you're supposed to take seriously. <laughs> um, I think that Mark is doing the classic abuser thing, where now he has leverage and he's taking advantage of that. That's prob. That's most likely. But I wanted to at least to kind of chew on the idea that maybe he was giving up some control and had gone through an arc through the movie. But my my thoughts on it are so informed that it's the path of least resistance is Mark being an asshole. So I think you have a, a, a an easier hill to climb than I do I mean, on that on that I, front. I, I think the, I think the movie still works regardless. For sure. I I never thought that Mark was as big of an asshole as he was until I saw it this time, and I completely blame my childhood history with Sam Neill on that like, <laughs> you know it 
some somehow having space and seeing it uh, removed from Sam Neill. I think the reason that him going insane works for me is that I always see him as a normal, safe person so that when he goes unhinged, it has an extra effect on me. And again, this is all Jurassic Park's fault. But I imagine if the first Sam Neill movie that you see is something like Possession, you, you are watching Jurassic Park waiting for him to uh, kill Ellie Sattler and throw the kids on the electric fence. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I saw Jurassic Park so young. I, I, I watched the shit out of the VHS that we had when I was a kid. Like, I think that was one of our first VHSs to fade it over time. Like, I think we destroyed that VHS. It is true how, like, if I had seen In the Mountains of Madness or something before seeing Jurassic Park, or I'd seen this before seeing Jurassic Park, I would probably have a very different idea of Sam Neill in movies because he... He usually doesn't, like, even in Event Horizon and stuff, he, he doesn't usually play a guy with his uh, his head completely on his shoulders. He usually plays a guy with a little bit of craziness to it. I haven't seen him in uh, Peaky Blinders, but I wild guess, flip a coin. I'm going to say that he's uh, probably a little unhinged in that, too. Yeah, and sanity is actually, like, his bread and butter, so it's weird to grow up and see, see him as a very normal, somewhat well-adjusted guy. Um, he's just got good crazy eyes, just like Isabella Johnny. He just has really good crazy eyes. Like the the scene where he's he walks in on uh, on her having sex with the the monster, and she's saying almost, almost, almost. Does that mean she's about to come? Is that what she's saying? I I don't know. That would be my. That's like the most literal interpretation of it. Is that she's about to come for this monster? That that seems. I I didn't remember that she's saying almost. I guess I'm more focused on the. The, the amazing special effects work. Yeah, were you, were you distracted? I was, <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't like, is whatever's inside her right now giving her a climax? Um, that was not part of my brain that was functioning at that moment. Yeah, porn ruins everything, huh? Um, yeah, you, you're like, you had to pause it, right? It's emotion. <laughs> but uh, it's kind of amazing because this movie had a relatively small budget, like one and a half million dollars or something. Pretty small budget. And the, the monster effects are pretty... Well, it was in, it was in West German money. Yeah. Uh, we haven't really touched on Peter and myself's uh, shared love of Lovecraftian imagery all that much yet on the podcast. I, I would say that this is probably, from a movie standpoint, the best realization of a Lovecraftian unknowable monster. Yeah, I think that in the sense that it, it keeps the mystery about what yeah. the monster's capabilities are and like why it's here, what its motivations are. A lot of that sort of stuff is kept nebulous. But the protagonists in Lovecraft stories are usually physically incapable of understanding what the hell the monster wants, what this otherworldly god wants. They, it is, really. Yeah, what it is, what it wants in this context. I'm really, yeah, I'd be happy to say that this is a Lovecraftian movie in terms of themes. It's definitely not judeo-christian the monster is not depicted as a, a you know devil with horns type of guy he's depicted as a, a tentacle monster that takes on humanoid features well it almost seems to be going through a transformation that we don't totally understand i mean like it's chrysalis, definitely going through a yeah. transform yeah because it the end result is that it's mark stoppelganger which we're going to get into in just a second here i don't know if it's just because we first don't get a full view of the monster but he seems to be more goopy in the first couple of glimpses. Like he's almost just a, this is a terrible uh, comparison, but like the fungus from the Super Mario Brothers movie that has like infested the town. It feels like <laughs> that's what's in that bathroom at first. It's just sort and of coating the walls and hugging yeah, the walls. That it's almost like this, yeah, this, this oozy fungus that eventually coalesces into a workable, movable creature that gets less and less goopy and alien and more and more human. So uh, and then eventually obviously becomes 
Mark's doppelganger who shows up at the end scene. Yeah. Let's, let's get into that. I, can I, we, can I'm going to say. One, can we hop back one second before we get into the, the end of the movie? Um, do whatever you so, want. So yeah. the bathroom scene that you were just talking about? Yeah. The implication. So she has a miscarriage, right? Is that related to the actual beast? Like the, the thought that I had is that she was going to have a, a second child. She had a quote unquote miscarriage. And then she ended up giving birth in the bathroom of that place to Mark's doppelganger. So Mark is Mark is culpable for her her insanity and her conception of this evil creature. Mark is, is culpable in that. Is he physically the father? Like, did he get her pregnant and then there was some sort of third party to the to the conception going on? Demon hijacked this thing to turn it into... Like, I think that she literally gave birth to the thing in that bathroom after the miscarriage scene, which is, you know, a place of vulnerability, a place where, like, a, a woman going through some really horrific body changes would maybe run to as a safe haven. And this, this bat, and then it's left in the bathroom, and then it gradually grows, grows up, and then makes its way to the bedroom. I guess I. I don't know for sure. One of the reasons I love this movie is that I could watch it a million times and come up with a different answer for this. What that is, I would say if I had to answer right now, I would say that it is Marx. But I think I think going back to the title, I think I think the title clues you in a little bit. I think that it, it is his poison that he's been infecting her with throughout their entire marriage. I think it's the somewhat personification of all that rage and hate and control kind of being changed within her and it kind of comes out a different end as like a monster. I think if you were to get into a metaphor of what the creature is, it's a metaphor for all the horrible sludgy excess that comes after a hard breakup and she is kind of communing with it in a weird alien way and then the end of that is a form of somewhat acceptance because now Mark is this perfect creature that she's helped form through her processing it. I don't even know if that makes sense, but like that's what that's how I feel about what the creature is. If you were to ask me what the director or what they were going for. Like from a movie standpoint, it's just it's just a fucking gross monster who is now in their lives as a result of being driven away from her husband by his horribleness. I don't think you're I don't think you're off base at all. I think you're speaking to a movie that is supposed to have sort of impressionistic and not like a literal horror. Like I don't think the horror is supposed to make sense in like a biological level. The movie's not like spliced or something where they're like going into what made this thing a thing down to like the DNA level. This is supposed to be sort of a a figurative monster born out of the horribleness that the two put themselves, put each other through. I was trying to trace the miscarriage to the bathroom to the thing. That's why the miscarriage is so weird because the miscarriage comes well after we know that she's having sex with this monster. So I don't I don't know if it's supposed because I think the easy answer is that this is a result of her having sex with the monster. But I, I don't think that's actually the case. I thought the miscarriage was like, yeah, I don't know. Well, it's not. It's I mean, there's always been an implication that she's having some sort of sexual relationship with the creature. But um, it's definitely post creature. Yeah, I, I think that the chronology of this movie is hard to track. I tried to track it with what clothing she's wearing. Are you like a serial killer? Do you have like yarn all over poster boards? And like, <laughs> she's wearing this outfit at this time code. Um, and, I, I, and you know, I think um, I think that's why this movie is a little hard to talk about. I think a little bit in the sense that trying to create a metaphor around it, it's there, but I think it 
reduces and removes some of the strangeness of this movie. But at the end of the day, when you're talking about it, you can't just go, yeah, it's some crazy monster. It's awesome. You should watch it. So that is where I come down at the end of the day is this is a fucking nutso movie that's going to emotionally wreck you. You should watch it. I don't know. We're analyzing it to the point that is fun to do, but not necessary to know the answers. Yeah, and I, I agree. So do you want to do you want to run to the to the end of oh, the yeah. movie? I, I want to say I'm going to say the last 10 minutes of this movie are up there for my favorite last 10 minutes of any movie ever. They're wonderful. And, and it basically begins with Mark is contacted by the spy agency that they want him back. There is one aspect of the ending that I've watched this movie now four times. I do not understand. Do you want to run us through like the the ins and outs so, from Mark yeah, so basically, basically deciding yeah, he's going to break from the spy agency and then yeah so and he decides that he's also again I'm a little unclear he just is basically going to use the fact that his wife has murdered people he doesn't want to be part of the spy agency and somehow this comes into like I need to help her escape and there's people following her it's a little it's a little muddy to be honest but it's this kind of all of a sudden and even the music changes suddenly and there's to like this weird action. Uh, music mm-hmm. and and eventually so uh, mark jumps on this motorcycle and i have to believe that sam neil actually wrecked a motorcycle because otherwise that stunt makes no sense to me because it, it it is it's 1981 and it really is like sam neil kind of being dragged alongside a motorcycle that just crashed and he's definitely riding it and he's um, screaming and he's just blowing yeah. through these archways it's so crazy looking yeah and so he goes to the teacher's apartment and then all of a sudden anna runs up the stairs and he's like how did you know that this teacher even existed uh, she and the and uh, his doppelganger both have green eyes it's supposed to be that they're both idealized versions of something that they're and then their meeting at the end is going to symbolize some sort of catastrophic destruction so uh yeah so anna tracks him down they're running up the stairs the police are shooting at there's helicopters like they have a whole whatever the west german version of a swat team uh, it's probably schwat yeah schwat <laughs> that's Got the it. dumbest joke i've ever seen mm-hmm. i've ever said and you know he's he's shot he got shot in the back already by the police officers and anna's like hey we're here and now she has like this piece about her and he's like well how how'd you find this place and she says, well, look, look what I've brought. Don't worry. He's finished. And it's it's Sam Neill looking extra. Probably the most crazy I've ever seen Sam Neill look, which is saying something. Yeah. Um, Those eyes. Yeah. and But he's also smiling. So it's the combination of like his crazy lunatic look with like a smirk on his face that is especially unsettling. The helicopters shoot both of them and they kind of have a weird reconciliation. The shots go right Mark's uh, doppelganger or the tentacle monster made flesh. During this time Anna's doppelganger is in the house and the second that Mark's doppelganger shows up, their kid Bob starts yelling, uh, don't open, don't open, don't open. And in an amazing performance by this child actor. I mean, it is the first time he starts screaming, don't open, is harrowing. There's all of a sudden sirens, there's bombs, there's like tornado alarms. There's it, it feels like the world's coming to an end. It's kind of a plate glass door. And Mark's doppelganger is now just rubbing his body against the door. He's not entering. He is not trying to enter. He is just almost like trying to ooze into the apartment. Like he doesn't realize that he's... Uh, flesh and blood that he can't just do that he is just slowly gyrating himself against the door meanwhile bob just keeps screaming don't open don't open runs upstairs fully clothed into a filled bathtub jumps in uh head down and drowns himself uh, in, in such a long shot that i have to imagine the kid who played him wasn't 
danger. Um, or there was some sort of air apparatus. I don't know. And then there's there's louder and louder silence. There's machine guns. The implication is that the world is about to end and it kind of just slowly fades out on uh, Anna's doppelganger's face. Yeah, it's and, and we hear the whistling of missiles launching. Yep. And it's basically, and it has, it's one of my favorite endings uh, because it has a mic drop sound effect, which is just uh, these wh- the whistle of, of missiles going overhead over the credits with no music. Yep. And it is so eerie. It's so creepy. And it's, it's a thing where you're just like left to ruminate on this apocalyptic vision. And the movie has aged really well a lot of the time because of this, because I think like right now people are obsessed with apocalypse movies and this one has a particular touch to it. Um, it's funny that... Samuel played the Antichrist, basically, uh, or some some form of, you know, New World Order demonic figure in this, because you also played Damien in uh, Omen 3. And basically, if you're making an Antichrist movie and not casting Samuel, what the fuck are you doing? You are a terrible casting he's, agent. I can't imagine he's busy. that... Yeah, I can't imagine that he's that expensive. Yeah. Like, get, get your priorities. His career has been sadly, uh, sadly underutilized. Oh, you weren't watching Alcatraz on ABC <laughs> I, I three wasn't. years ago. Um, so yeah, I think I think the boring version of this ending is it is a big old metaphor for the fact that Anna and Mark get back together when that is a terrible idea, um, and that that there is uh, a devastating future. That's still to come by them not realizing that Mark is a terrible freak and a controlling asshole, or they shouldn't be together or anything like that so that's the boring way to look at what the ending means i like to think of it as i feel like there's a whole side story in this movie and this is the way i actually like and prefer to think about it and i think the movie supports this that there's basically this whole side creature of the fact that anna is this um abused wife who finds solace with this weird creature and there's there, there could be a whole nother movie made on what the creature's goals are but basically he is there to become human through the help of this woman and bring about the destruction of the world and i think that's even more affecting that kind of just being the implication of what's going on and less so the text that we're seeing the story from the abused spouse who finds solace in this creature there's a whole nother thing going on so i think i think that that's I mean, I think verbalizing that, again, in a movie that's this open to interpretation makes it probably sound stupider than I intended. But that's not what I'm thinking about, but that's the feeling that it gives me, which if that makes any sense. So, yeah, what what did you how did you interpret the ending or what do you think that it supposed to add up to? I think uh, mostly on the same page as you. They basically gave birth to and I I honestly don't understand um, Anna's doppelganger, the teacher. I don't understand her role as much as like. She's just a projection of what Mark wants in a woman. I don't understand what grander purpose that she serves in that she she's going to be reunited with Mark's doppelganger. But there is the idea, yes, that there's a calamitous doom that will come with these two projections meeting. And I, I honestly don't have any... I don't have anything super interesting to say on why these two figurative impressions like that were created just to serve the goals of Mark and uh, Anna, why these two things created just to serve their goals, their uniting would cause some sort of calamity for the world other than 
Mark's doppelganger is seeking out a partner to kick off this new world order. The- yeah, I, I don't... The sense of doom is palpable, though. Yeah. Like, it feels like the world is about to end to the point that it's almost tough to turn the movie off. I don't know what it means either. If the point of a film is to make you feel the doom that is occurring on screen... Uh, mission accomplished. Yeah. Really weird stuff. Really, really weird stuff. I'm, I'm really, really happy with this movie. And even if I didn't understand literally what was happening, I was taken on such a uh, an experiential journey. Because at the end of the movie, I'm always felt with this sort of like jaw-dropping coldness. Yeah, it's hard to just turn it off. It's truly an experience. At the end of the movie, there's a revelation that one of the guys wears pink socks. And early in the movie, <laughs> basically, they're talking about a contact. They're saying this contact has vials, which I just... I, I interpreted as mark is basically smuggling some sort of samples of biological material which might just be me projecting from watching the americans this season so the man with the pink socks that kind of seems like your stray scene that you want to talk about oh, so the, the pink sock thing i didn't understand it i just thought that that was supposed to be some sort of revelation for the spy plot and at that point at that point <laughs> we're like does the spy plot even matter anymore I think that this movie has like other movies going on that you're not seeing. It's there's a, there's layers upon layers to this onion that I I haven't been able to crack. Like I learn a little bit, a little bit more about this movie every time I watch it. It's a very fun puzzle to to crack. And every time I watch it, the stuff that just threw me on the first viewing is is I catch more. But I still the spy plot line is so Byzantine that I just can't I. I, I can't figure it out. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing that, that I wanted to mention is uh, this movie uses the horror that is the electric knife in better than any other movie I'm aware of. <laughs> we should note that Anna has multiple scenes where she tries to kill herself, basically. And she has one where she runs in front of a truck. And she has one involving an electric knife where she just starts going at her neck with it. She's just chopping meat at first and then she starts getting into it with Mark and pain of watching her just scream and cut into her neck and Mark has to stop her is really palpable and really, really gross. And then Mark takes it and just starts kind of cutting at his arm. Yeah. Not in a suicidal way, but just in like that he is just a piece of meat and he is cutting up pieces of it. And she doesn't care at all. You know, it feels like we could talk about this movie for six hours because Every scene in this movie is worth talking about. It's it's that good. Yeah, I, I, I could watch this movie again and again and again. I'm always excited to watch this movie. It, it forms whatever feelings I'm having at the time. If I'm happy, I'm kind of sad. Like, it just forms me to its its vision. And that's the sign of a truly powerful movie. Yeah. Uh, so, so, thank you for joining us for Possession. We have two more weeks to go before... Our rebranding. I think we actually have a new name picked out. It's going to be uh, Listen With Your Ears to our podcast. Um, it just rolls off the tongue. Rolls off the tongue. People asked us to be more specific. Uh, we realized that we had said listen, but not how to. But <laughs> we're excited about that. There's going to be more announcements about, about what that means. It's more of just some changes to how we select movies and a mild uh, name change that I think uh, we like a little bit better than our current one so listen to our podcast will still apply because that is how you will be experiencing whatever peter and i come up with yeah and thank you very much for listening before we do our our grand rebranding we have two more episodes uh a simple plan which will feature dustin kosky fan of the show a dissolved friend of ours and we will also have the apple which is a canon's uh foray into musicals 
So we have a real uh, a real choice to make between my love for canon movies and my hate for musicals. So we'll see how that one goes. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, I am Aaron Armstrong. I may stop at some point, probably at the time of my death. Uh, and I'm uh, Pete Moran, and I'm planning on being Pete Moran uh, until a little bit longer than Aaron Armstrong. Well, I'd hope so. Yeah. Uh, because my life is going to end with you, right? You're planning to. <laughs> That's the rule. You're planning to suffocate me in my sleep. I, I have you in my living will, Peter, so <laughs> fall down on your job. Uh, Matt, I, I feel like it's always best to end these on the weirdest possible note that we can come up with. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Yeah, thank you for listening. Back.